Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan, everyone, and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th editions of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Marta in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor, and Eyal Baseman. Let's start with episode number one, entitled Trigger. What does it take to change the future? In which Marta talks with America's science fiction writer, Kim Sterry Robinson. In the second part of the recording, you will find questions from climatologist Luchka Kaifesh-Bogatai, philosopher and environmentalist Luca Omladic, sound artist Ida Hirschenfelder, and our dear online audience. So, without further ado, here we go. Marta Perano talking to Kim Steady Robinson. As you have heard, we are virtually at Axioma, the Institute for Contemporary Art in Ljubljana, and with the most beloved and definitely optimistic science fiction author today, Kim Stanley Robinson. Welcome to you. Thanks, Marta. It's good to be with you. So you have written a trilogy about terraforming Earth, where we see our planet turn hostile to human life through climate change and about terraforming other planets and even moons in the solar system, as in your very extraordinary Mars trilogy, also a very fascinating exercise of comparative governance. And in the last few years, you have been carrying very specific simulations under the what would happen if genre, there is Aurora, um, pardon my Spanish pronunciation, where you send a multi-generation colony to conquer a planet 12 light years away from Earth, a story narrated by the ship itself. In New York 2140, you subject the city to a 15 meters rise of seawater, turning New York into a new kind of um, a strangely alluring and interesting new Venice. And finally, in the Ministry for the Future, which you published in last October, the projection is of the very right now. What happens if the world's political leaders keep ignoring their own climate agreements, if we can you know, possibly imagine that thing happening? And what happens in the book is that a heat wave in a particular region in India kills 20 million people in less than a week, triggering a chain of events. I have to say this is both the most terrifying and also optimistic book I have read in a very, very long time. So my first question to you is, is this what you think it would take us to take appropriate action? And 
What made you go for a heat wave in India? And did you consider maybe other possible triggers that you discarded? And was any of them a pandemic? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. The um, I had been reading in the scientific literature that if you the rise in average global temperatures that we're already experiencing, if they pass the two degrees Celsius average rise that has been um, defined as as high as we can go without dangerous side effects, you almost immediately get to moments where the combination of heat and humidity is so intense that humans can't survive it. So all the talk that you hear out there that you, we will just adapt, that we have to go with the flow, and if it gets hotter, we, we'll just cope with that, is actually um, fantasy thinking because the human body, uh, when a certain combination of high heat and high humidity is reached, uh, dies of, of overheating because our, our sweating system doesn't work. So what I, I mean, I was thinking that if I could write this scene um, vividly enough that maybe we don't have to have the actual event happen. Maybe the knowledge that it could happen would be enough to shock us into action. So um, I did think about the the uh, using uh, fiction as a warning system to see if I could uh, stimulate uh, people to the realization that this could really happen because it can, and I'm. I'm frightened. Everybody should be frightened. There are, uh, the tropics are in the most danger. In India, because of the back wall of the Himalayas. But in fact, one of the highest wet bulb temperatures, as they call it, heat and humidity combined, ever recorded was outside of Chicago in the United States. So it isn't true that it's just a tropical problem. It could happen anywhere where uh, heat and humidity combine, which is, goes way far to the north and south of the equator. So, um, and to, to your last question, I didn't think of a pandemic at all. I wrote this book in 2019, and I guess I was thinking of um, of, of uh, communicable diseases sort of like the flu or maybe that either they were localized like the SARS was in Southeast Asia and, and um, Hong Kong or or that they would be mild enough that people would just go on living with them the way we were living with ordinary flus. So I did not think of a pandemic. And um, obviously when that struck, the world learned a new lesson that we are um, very dependent on, on the rest of the biosphere for our own health. Yeah, totally. Well, one of the important obstacles that you often point out is that People think of, of climate change as some sort of a thermostat that when it gets too hot, we can just, you know, stop flying for a bit and then turn it down a little bit, which is ironically the reason why people keep buying SUVs and the sort, but at the same time reject geoengineering. Uh, you've studied geoengineering a lot for many, many years. So what chances would you say we have to survive in these conditions without deliberately manipulating the climate? Well, we're almost to the 1.5 Celsius degree rise in global average temperatures that, that the Paris Agreement um, and the IPCC calls out as being as high as we can go safely. 
so then the question becomes um, how quickly can we stop burning carbon into the atmosphere it's not going to be instantaneous it's going to be a process so then we might pass the two degree limit then we might get up into that area of the wet bulb 35 temperatures that endanger millions so then comes in this concept geoengineering and it has to be said that the word has come to stand for doing bad things to try to get away with our previous bad things. So there's a knee-jerk reaction against the whole idea of geoengineering. But um, interventions at mass scale, we're doing them already. We're doing them accidentally and, and damaging the biosphere. If we were to plan to do some deliberately to try to reduce that damage, I don't see the harm in it. And the so-called moral hazard, that if we knew we had such a thing, we would keep polluting the atmosphere, we're past that point. It's an all-hands-on-deck situation. These things are need to be studied and considered because we may be doing them. So some of them seem quite crazy to me and dangerous. Um, if you seed the ocean with uh, iron filings and you create an algal bloom and then sinks to the bottom, well, this is messing with a an ecological system, the oceans, that has already been acidified by us. It's already... Um, uh, an area that's crucial to us that's already damaged, and and you can't turn down the, the acidity of the ocean the way you can maybe turn down the temperature of the air. So people turn their attention to the turning down of, of the temperature of the air by throwing dust into the atmosphere like a volcano. It's very commonly known. It's called solar radiation management. It wouldn't be expensive to do it, uh, comparative to many things, and it's within our powers. So it's getting discussed. Now, I want to throw in one more thing, though. Um, if the human population were to go down uh, in uh, over the next decades uh, faster than we think that it will, you could call that geoengineering. Now, what creates that effect of bending the curve of human population rise is precisely women's education everywhere. When women are educated and have their full legal and political rights, the rate of population increase drops to below the replacement rate within one generation. And this is not by coercion. This is simply by the liberation of women in education. And then you suddenly get to a replacement rate of, say, 1.5 um, uh, children per woman on the planet, and the population go begins to go down faster than is expected. And now this is also geoengineering. So at that point, you have to realize that everything we do now as a civilization could be reinterpreted as a kind of geoengineering. And some of it is intensely positive in itself, like women's education, that then would have environmental effects that are also positive. So um, these double goods have to be sought out. And we have to start thinking about geoengineering as something that we're already doing, and we need to um, organize it for the good of the biosphere. Yeah, that we've already been doing for a good hundred years, but non-deliberately, hopefully. I like that headline about the women's education is a good geoengineering. One of the things that, that we, or at least I, didn't think too much about before I read the book was the possibility that that geoengineering could be done by a country unilaterally as in the book india deciding to you know to start this project 
of throwing these particles in the air in order to avoid a new, you know, <laughs> mass death event like the heat wave. And I was wondering how likely in the current geopolitical environment do you think that would be and how much of a leverage it is that a country like India or maybe a coalition of countries like, say, Latin America could actually take that decision by themselves? Well, I think it is a real situation. It's not expensive. And I'm saying that, um, well, maybe it would cost a billion dollars to uh, recreate uh, the equivalent of a Pinatubo, the volcano that went off in 91, that we've studied enough to know that that much dust in the atmosphere um, would drop temperatures by a degree or two for about five years, and then the dust settles out and you're back to where you were before. So it, it looks relatively safe and it's inexpensive. Um, the, the dust involved should not be the same kind of dust that comes out of volcanoes because that's sulfur dioxide and it, it uh, d uh, wrecks the ozone layer a bit. It would need to be something like uh, limestone, the calcium carbonates, just ordinary dust that's already up there. It's so easy to do. You, you can imagine not just one country doing it, but even one of our billionaires deciding that this would be an, a, a cool thing to do and thinking they were being altruistic and, and, and do it unilaterally. Well, I think with an individual that there would be shock and dismay and maybe people trying to stop it. If a country did it, especially a big um, nuclear-armed country did it because their own country had been torched by this uh, rise in temperatures, there is no international sheriff. There is no space uh, where this could be properly critiqued. If it was a nation like India from the global south, just following the thought experiment of Ministry for the Future, then the developed countries are the ones that have burned that carbon into the atmosphere by a, a huge percentage. And then the developing nations of the global south are the first ones to suffer the damage. We have no moral case over them, and we have no political or military mechanism over them. And what would we say to them if they were doing this to save their own citizens from being uh, killed by heat waves? We have nothing to say. So I think it could play out this way. I kind of doubt any international agreement could ever come to pass because some countries might fear that the damage in weather terms to their country would be bad for some reason or another. So um, it is, it's one of those situations where, again, with the Anthropocene, we're in a new territory, it's unprecedented, it's hard to know what would happen. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to remind our listeners that you can ask questions in the chat that belongs to this page while we speak, and some of them will be read at the end. And going back to the ministry, I really love how this setting where the discussion goes about how can India do this and not honor the agreement when all the other terms of the agreement have been dishonored in advance, no, by not actually committing to this reductions and other climate mitigation stuff. But one of the things that I really love too is the fact that at the same time that this wet bulb temperatures wreck human bodies, they also seem to destroy the, the machines that we rely on to keep our homes 
fresh the air conditioning machines, which of course would preemptively kill the whole millionaire bunker fantasy <laughs> that so many people are having right now with all this buying bunkers in New Zealand, etc. So just to be sure about this, would they not survive <laughs> if this were to happen? Would millionaires die too? Um, yeah, I think that's a fantasy and probably comforting if you are that rich and that disconnected from history and uh, understanding how the world really works. Um, you can't protect against it. You could indeed build a bunker and you could have generators, you could have electricity and, and you could probably have security in terms of guards. Um, and maybe you could stock a few years worth of food, uh, although that gets more and more questionable. But um, these are these billionaire fantasies, they're mostly men. And so maybe it's uh, easier for them to get it. Their sperm counts are one third of their grandfather's sperm counts. They cannot protect themselves from the world. We are like jellyfish in the ocean. We are breathing in the world with every breath and drinking it with every drink of water. And so we're interpolated and intermeshed with the biosphere. And it's a biospheric crash that we're talking about. No bunker will work. And this is, of course, something that they ought to take on board. It's a question whether they are being stupid uh, in the sense of deliberately ignorant or whether they are just hoping, or also whether they're just angry, and it's a kind of a Goethe Damerung response. Who knows? Some of them are very well-meaning and possibly are realizing that um, um, in, in the starship world, it's been estimated that to keep civilization going, modern civilization, you need a minimum of 100 million people but this includes the entire thing, the health industry, education, agriculture, all the necessities of life, machining, the technologies, the building of everything. So um, there is no escape. There, it doesn't matter how rich you are. Everybody on the planet is connected in one project. Well, I hope Elon Musk is listening to us today. <laughs> and uh, I am particularly fond of, of this idea that you, that you have written extensively about, that we are earthbound because we ourselves are colonies of viruses and bacteria and cannot really move to another planet and start again. And I would really like you to explain this lovely concept and how did you get there? Yeah, thank you. It's a, it was mind-boggling to me. I began to read this, and so did everybody else, about five or ten years ago. Um, a, a new fact was put into the world that we, it, it's that pe people think of as always already. That oh, we always knew that, but in but twenty years ago we didn't. Um, Fifty percent, approximately, of the DNA inside your body is not human DNA. <clears throat> Think about that for a while. And you realize you're a collaboration like a forest or any other biome, any ecological space like a swamp, because we are kind of swampy. 
um, being 90% water, but uh, the collaboration of all those bacteria, all those viruses, all those small creatures inside you and your gut in particular that create your mood and help your, with your cognition, what we define as ourself, which is kind of your stream of consciousness really, um, uh, is the, the tip of a, the thinking tip of a pyramid of biological activities. Well, um, that's a, that's an earth thing. Um, that comes, in fact, you, it gets deranged if you stay too clean. You need to get your hands in the dirt every once in a while and be a gardener, etc., to get connected with earth's bacteria and to refresh your load. Um, so your gut microbiome benefits from some contact with the rest of the world. And it starts from birth with your mom, etc. With that in mind, the whole fantasy of leaving Earth and going off into space, just in evolutionary terms, it falls apart. You probably, in my science fiction, where I postulate a solar system-wide civilization, the humans go back to Earth every seven years for a sabbatical to renew their bacterial load because then they simply live longer. None of this will be well quantified for centuries to come. But to me, it was one of those facts that's come about in my adult lifetime that that really changes everything about how we think of our relationship to the earth. Yeah, this is, um, this is something that we think a lot about now with the pan pandemic, no, that we've been reported for quite a long time. There's been children born in this conditions with no touching anything or anyone and everything being like, you know, extremely clean. And how is that going to affect us? when this strange period is passed. But I also heard that you you even uh, experienced this very concept while going to Antarctica, no? Like, you know, Antarctica is a place where a lot of virus and bacteria cannot really leave, so people cannot leave there. That's maybe true, yes. Antarctica is an interesting experiment, and I've been there twice, and I love it very much. Um, it's like easy travel to other planets, but it's Earth, and you know that, and so you realize this planet is is a, an astonishing uh, big ball spinning in space, and when the sun doesn't hit it, it turns into an ice place. So the human stations there are like space stations, except a lot easier. Um, and the difficulties in Antarctica are maybe 1% or 5% of the difficulties of living in space. And yet it's quite difficult to live there and nobody's spending their entire lives down there. It's structured as a space in which people go down there, do their work, and then they call it go coming back to the world to, to go north somewhere and, and get replenished. Now, as for you know the bacterial load, because it's been such a short time that people have even tried to live down there and because they come and they go, they come and they go, um, it isn't. It hasn't been run as an experiment in sterility. It's actually some urban cultures, some uh, you might say developed worlds, uh, maybe the United States, um, but also Japan, cleanliness cultures, uh, sterility cultures. Like oh, uh, germs are bad. The idea of germs. Uh, this is a kind of a, a mid twentieth century conception that things are bad for you and you need to be detached from the world with cleansers. And of course, the pandemic has given us a, an extra charge of that. Well, there are diseases of sterility, of being a little too clean. And so now 
there are working scientists I know, and you know they're always very experimental, even on themselves. That are um, eating a little um, a little tiny spoon of dirt uh, once a week, or even in some cases giving themselves um, a small doses of parasites that they think uh, will increase their uh, immunity strength. I I wouldn't endorse those. <laughs> Um, but I'm convinced that we are part of our biosphere to the point where if we detach from it, we begin to get sick. Yeah, let's not do that right now. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I love this, this concept especially is because it's, it's somehow the opposite of the famous, notorious Stuart Brand statement that we are as gods and we need to get good at it. And this is like literally like the opposite, no? Like we are actually nature <laughs> and we need definitely to get better at it and and there is something in the book that i also uh, really enjoyed and it's when you talk about ideology and how everybody has one you know you cannot not have one because you know it's embedded and and you're and you're relating to the world but how much of all this trouble <laughs> that we're talking about and that we're in has to do with this ideology of being other than nature, of, of not wanting to be animals, of being separated from nature? Well, that's a good question, and it gets into depths of philosophy where I quickly drown. But I, I do want to say that Stuart Brand is a, a friend of mine, and I think a force for good in the world. And what you have to look at in that statement, which he's modified a few times through his life, is that we are as gods. So he didn't say we are gods. And if you think of the, the Greek gods, the pantheon, well, they're all screw-ups and um, petty, jealous, foolish characters. So I think what Brand was trying to indicate was our technological powers and our numbers in combination mean that we are a geoengineering force whether we want to be or not. So that's what he meant by um, we are as gods. And the as is very important. We have immense powers. We don't know how to use them. We're using them in ignorance already in advance of knowing how to use them. So that's why he said we might as well get good at it. And recently he's modified that we have to get good at it. And uh, he's right about that. So um, the philosophical notion, enlightenment or, or uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian, the monotheisms, the notion that humanity is, is separate from nature, from the rest of the biosphere, well, it's, this is wrong. We are, in fact, creatures of the earth. We're expressions of the earth's biosphere. We co-evolved with it and we rely on it completely. And there's no escape from that. So that realization, that's what the Anthropocene should mean. This is the era in which we are a geological force by accident. And we have to, as Brand said, we have to get good at it. So um, I, I would say that uh, rather than, uh, Stuart Brand is not the problem because he's open to any solutions. He's, for many years, he's been in all hands on deck. Let's do anything that might help. And he's very open-minded. His ideology is, uh, from my point of view, maybe even too broad-minded, like anything that works. So, um, 
you know, if, if capitalism were suddenly to get sane, then that would be fine. And I'm not sure that that's right. I, my ideology is not quite the same as his. It's more, more leftist, more um, socially organized towards the public over the private in a way that I think he would just shrug and say, we're in a situation where anything that works is a good thing. Uh, for me, it seems obvious that it's um, um, the stuff that is most socially just is going to work the best because people are going to believe in it the most. So we, we're not in total agreement, but uh, we are allies in the same cause. And I think that's another point that I want to make before we move on is that um, everybody's got their own ideology, but there's a broad coalition of people working for justice and sustainability that have their own opinions about what's most important. And you shouldn't start fighting the people on your own side just because they don't have the same emphasis that you have. Uh, they are still your allies and you have real enemies, human enemies. And so there ought to be a united front against the real enemies who are still advocating the burning of fossil fuels, who are still advocating the power of the 1% and not just advocating, but enacting it. So in that big battle that we're in, which is really a wicked battle, the story of our century, you've got to hang with the united front, even if you're not in total agreement with them. Yeah, I agree. Though, I also think that this fantasy is, no, like the fantasy of just like, you know, dropping this planet that we already wasted and jump to the next one, to the, to the planet B, um, also make us very vulnerable now to opportunistic enterprises. And I am also thinking how right now, like, you know, the space is being bought over by the two richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Elon Musk of SpaceX. And I have to tell you, if you tell me that they are very good friends of yours, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Um, no, they're not, uh, uh, but um, not in the sense of Stuart Brand. Um, I've, I've met Musk. I know about Bezos. Um, I know about Gates. Um, I'm, I'm, I think these are perfectly um, fine individual people. Um, I think there should be no such thing as billionaires and that space is a, is a commons and, and a, a place for the public good where um, the civilization at large does its work through its governments to uh, try to protect Earth's biosphere. That space science is an Earth science. And there, except for communications, there's almost no other reason to go up into space. It doesn't work to make a profit in space, except maybe in the communications industry, if, if you structure the economy the way we are now. But um, when I say there should be no such thing as billionaires, it's, it's the tax laws and the, the ways in which uh, we organize our economic lives should simply be cooperatives where everybody benefits from the work that everybody does. And I point to the tax laws in the United States right after World War II. This is a Republican, uh, Dwight Eisenhower and a Republican Congress. The maximum tax rate for individuals was uh, above a certain small limit, like $400,000 a year, was um, 90%. And now it's 20% and dodged at that. But it should be 90% with prejudice in that the even from the get-go, you shouldn't be making enough money that you need to be taxed that much. So in other words, wage parity, the cooperative values, these things are out there in the literature. 
Um, they're a kind of a reformist or a, a liberation theology capitalism where um, if you organize things around the employees as the powers rather than the owners, then you shift power in classical terms from capital to labor and you go on as a more just uh, civilization forward from that. So um, when you criticize individuals like Bezos and Musk, and Musk is doing great spaceships, he's doing great cars, he's actually decarbonizing the planet faster than any other billionaire. So his personal quirks, his weird hobbies, so what? The, this is all irrelevant to the larger systemic problem of um, the way that we organize economic life and the, and the communal existence of humanity on this planet. Um, these billionaires would not be hurt if they only had $10 million rather than $50 billion. Their lives wouldn't change even in the slightest. And it might take a big burden off of their heads. So that's another strand of ministry for the future, but it's also a political project from the left that um, needs to come back. Neoliberal capital has ruled for 40 years now, since Reagan Thatcher, and people have come to take its axioms as normality itself. They are just axioms, and they're wrecking uh, people's lives and the biosphere. So um, all that needs to be restructured in a most radical way. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to remind, again, our listeners that you can ask questions in the chat that goes with this webpage. And then let's talk about the market. And, and I have to confess, when you were saying before that, that one individual could maybe be the one that throws particles into the air unilaterally, it was these two people that I immediately thought of just because they could. But when you talk about the market, you have said often that it systemically devalues human life and the environment. And in your novels, you have, again, consistently chosen to think about the end of capitalism instead of the end of the world or better than the end of the world. And so I was going to ask you about that new kind of cryptocurrency that you thought could create a carbon negative society at a planetary scale the carbon quantitative easing paper that you often talk about too. But we're going to also talk about Mondragon, which is something that, that people in Twitter have been asking <laughs> you to do because, hi, I'm a Spanish. Uh, and so we are so proud every time you talk about this cooperative. Yeah. Well, uh, so a few points there that I want to make sure not to miss. I want to make it really clear that I'm not talking about cryptocurrency in the sense of Bitcoin or any of the rest of them, Ethereum, etc. I'm talking about fiat currency, which is to say the mm -hmm. currencies that are put forth and backed by the central banks of the world. Uh, and it's those central banks that are at the, at the uh, drive the plot of my ministry for the future because they make the money that everybody trusts. Ultimately, the backstop currency in this world right now is the U.S. dollar, and everything else trades against it. And if it were to crash, there would be no security in this world. So fiat currencies. And so quantitative easing has been done by central banks. After the 2008 crash, at the start of the pandemic, money was injected into the system that did not exist before, and it didn't destabilize people's trust in money itself. There was not inflation or deflation. Uh, 
Uh, and what that's done is proved that quantitative easing, which is the central banks making up new money, can be done in quite significant amounts, not huge, but significant. And then if that first creation of money by the central banks was devoted to decarbonizing work, which is never going to be the highest rate of return, and in ordinary market capitalism will never be paid for to be done quickly enough to save us from disaster, then the quantitative easing, which, you know, you can call it carbon quantitative easing, but really it's biospheric health quantitative easing, uh, if you look at it in its largest perspective, that money created and spent on good causes could create something like full employment because this is human work. Enormous amount of human work needs to be done for this rapid decarbonization. So what you do is you begin to slip out of the market system and acknowledge the importance of the public as opposed to private in getting us out of this fix by simply creating money and paying ourselves to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Some mechanisms are in the that Delton Chen paper, which is now being discussed. And what I'm really encouraged by is, although when I wrote Ministry for the Future, just two years ago, this stuff was speculative. In the months since then, uh, the World Bank, the European Union's Central Bank, and the Federal Reserve of the United States, and the Chinese government, which is in control of its central bank, um, they have all declared that there needs to be various versions of carbon quantitative easing. And the think tanks are trying to provide the armatures of um, what kind of laws you would pass, et cetera. It's a happening thing because it's obvious. Because if we don't do it, we're doomed. And therefore, we're beginning to think about, oh, I guess we have to do this. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting things that 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 I that I was following at the beginning of the pandemic was how all the newspapers and the experts and, you know, and, and politicians were talking about how after this sanitary health crisis was coming like a massive economical one. And it's interesting that we were dealing in, in the first crisis with a virus that we didn't know before and that we didn't know how to handle and didn't have the tools yet to actually contain. And yet money is just an agreement, no? It's, it's just databases updating at once no it's just like an invention it doesn't really have a connection with reality anymore so it shouldn't be it should be a much easier crisis to resolve than the sanitary one and yet we organize civilization by way of money and we're in a capitalist system that says that it's okay for the richest 10% of people on the planet to benefit from the work of all 100% of the people. And that's a mindset also. So everybody, well, of course, that's normality itself, as if it's physics. And it's not physics. And I take your point. It should be easier to change that than the, the our relationship to viruses that are invisible and that we breathe on each other and then make each other sick and die. It ought to be easier to manipulate the money. But the point is that um, the hegemonic thinking of our time, our sense of what's normal in the way that we organize ourselves as human beings is is a, what people are calling capitalist realism, that this is reality itself. Well, since it's crashing people's lives and crashing the biosphere system, 
we have to rethink that. And so that's why one looks to Mondragon, where the employees on the companies and the, whatever profit is made in the larger economy is split up three ways between the employees, um, infrastructure improvements, and uh, charities that the employees choose. Well, that's one step, the co-op model. And then you have to realize that the market, since it systemically devalues things and prices everything wrong in biosphere terms and in human health terms, that then you would have to um, get into very scary territory of thinking, well, all these things should actually be public goods um, that maybe you pay a fee for, but that nobody makes a profit for, that they're governmental nonprofits, food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education, and electricity, that these are all things that the people create for people and not for profit. This is a um, um, radical reform. And whether it can be done fast enough and in an orderly fashion uh, is the question for our time, really. This is the project that we are thrust into, even if we didn't want to be, we're thrust into it anyway by the biosphere emergency that we're in. So I, I guess as a science fiction writer and as an ex-Martian, it's, it's um, easier for me to see that people are proposing future plans. They're always writing a science fiction story. So everybody now is a science fiction writer saying, well, it's, um, we're doomed. They're dystopian science fiction writers. Other people are saying, um, well, everything's going to be fine in capitalist reality. We'll just price things right, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is what Zizek is calling cruel optimism, the idea that um, we'll be okay and we don't have to change that much is what he calls cruel optimism. So you have to cut a line between um, unnecessary pessimism, because we're not doomed yet, and cruel optimism, that everything's going to be okay no matter what we do. Neither of those are true. In between them, there's a, a practical line of, oh my gosh, we have to make big changes fast. We're not good at that. Let's see if we can organize it and do it. Absolutely. And of course, like one of the definitely important investments that we need to think of right now is infrastructure. And um, I thinking of your, I think, second to last novel that you call A Comedy of Coping, New York 2140, where you literally turn New York flooding into romantic comedy and people just go out their lives and go to work and fall in and out of love. And it's so cheerful. It makes you want to live there. And, uh, and also it made me think a lot of, of Madrid where I live or, or actual New York and, and why I feel they are particularly livable right now. But on the other hand, it also made me think of Fairbone, which is this uh, town in the north of Wales, in the coast of Wales, that has been literally decommissioned by the government. I think the first town to be decommissioned by a government because precisely of a predictive sea level rise of 0.5 meters, not 15 meters like in your novel, but 0.5 meters in the next 30 days. So I wonder... What strategies and coping mechanisms did you learn while writing this novel that can turn maybe not New York, but, you know, so many towns in the world into a flourishing Venice? Uh, so, you know, how, what, what, what could you tell us that could help us prepare? Well, um, yeah, 
in New York 2140, I wanted to do a kind of a thought experiment that had a couple points to it. One of them was whether we do well or poorly in the 21st century in dealing with the biosphere crisis, there are going to be human beings alive in the 22nd century and in the 23rd century, and they're going to be born into it and they're going to grow up into it. And however it's working then, they're going to be coping with it. And there's going to be uh, the comedy of coping. There's going to be young people falling in love, trying to create families, and trying to do good work. So one thing that this culture gets into is the idea that if we do poorly in coping, um, it's the end of the world. Humanity will go extinct. And after that, there's nothing. And so there's a kind of uh, doomism that, that passes for um, uh, its cynical reason. It's, it's a pretense of uh, intelligence. And it's easier to be cynical and then pretend that you're smart than it is to be hopeful and expose yourself to the accusation that you're not being very realistic. But the truth is that humanity, there's 8 billion of us, it is possible that we could crash civilization to the point where billions die and then the population replacement rate crashes, not so many born, and we end up with a much, much smaller human population uh, 100 or 200 years from now, say 200. But that would be bad. I mean, that's really the dark scenario. You still have billions of humans alive on the planet in the wreckage of our civilization, building a new one and trying to cope with the situation given them. They will curse us, they will be amazed at us, but they won't be sitting on the ground throwing ashes on their head and saying, it's all over, How, uh, woe is me. They'll be coping. So that's the one point I wanted to make. And another is that uh, capitalism will not go down easily. It will always be trying to find the margin and, and um, um, uh, spread the bets, hit the uh, and and uh, go short and long on any given economic situation and try to make money out of it. And unless we legislate it into something better, it will continue to try to uh, do its predations on the on people. The system is a predatory, parasitic system that we live in, and so changing that, I wanted to point out, might be an ongoing project. It's not going to. Enlightenment is not going to go off in people's heads all over the world and us change to a better system all at once. It's going to be a, a struggle, let's say. Uh, and I want to point out that I'm talking about the discursive battle. It could get physically violent, but at this point, like what we're doing right now and what we often do, it's the discursive battle, the battle of ideas. And if the right ideas were to win, you could legislate your way to a better system without having to have the dangers and the disasters of, of a physical uh, revolution. So um, um, all these things came into my vision of New York, which I have to say has a really strong built infrastructure right now. Um, coastal cities that have been uh, thrown up uh, ad hoc in the last 20 years by massive population uh, influxes, they won't be so strong to develop a sea level rise. And there will be decommissioning like that little town in Wales. Um, parts of Staten Island in New York City itself, there are streets that after Hurricane Sandy, I think it was, 
um, they, the government simply bought up the houses on that street and began to remove them because that's the new shoreline. A lot of that kind of accommodating to higher sea level is going to have to happen. And it'll have to be treated as an opportunity to do good ecological work, a return of wetlands. We need those. Um, that will be part of the carbon drawdown effort. So in other words, in coping with the biosphere emergency, all kinds of things are going to happen. They're all going to be on the table and they ought not to be labeled in advance by our older ideologies. Um, it's a it's a time of flux. And so almost anything that you think is right. And for me, I have to think, well, Maybe there are market mechanisms that we will need. And so for me as an old leftist, this is a shocking thought. But if I'm going to go with what I, my own prescription, that everything's on the table, then even kind of um, what I would call reactionary or retrograde or regressive thoughts like that have to be entertained to see if there's any use value in them. Absolutely agree. Actually, the thing we're not telling is that the process between the flooding in the beautiful new life in Super Venice is not told in the book. <laughs> but maybe maybe we can imagine it by also reading the ministry for the future where the process is actually told. And I really like the fact that that it involves almost all possibilities, which is how reality plays, no? Like people People tend to imagine that the end of the world will be, you know, a thing that happens in one day, like in the movies when an asteroid hits the Earth very hard, unless Bruce Willis is there to stop it, or um, or how, <laughs> or how, you know, the flood, which is our favorite metaphor for for every catastrophe, and how we are saved in the last minute, all of us, by one technology and one Elon Musk of the day. But, but in your book, you basically split reality into many different futures and, and many different solutions that interlace and even interplay to actually like <laughs> extremely optimistic end. So I really, I have to say, this was the thing that I liked the most about the book, apart from the fact that, again, it's the most optimistic book about the future I have read in a very long time. And it has made me feel optimistic about the future, which is one of the reasons why it was so important for us to have you here opening this reprogramming series and being like the guiding light for the rest of the of the season. So before I pass you to our three very special guests that are sitting right now in Ljubljana, I want to thank you and thank Nessa, who is going to going to help us into the questions that have been left in the chat before. So I would love to introduce you to our three special guests, but embarrassingly, my Spanish throat is just not, is not habilitated for pronouncing your beautiful Slovenian names. So floor is yours. Okay. Uh, well, my name is correctly pronounced uh, Luchka Karfish Bogatai. Uh, Luchka is like Lucy in <laughs> Lucy in in English. Uh, well, I am a climatologist, and uh, I'm really glad that I have uh, opportunity to talk with the author and you. So uh, it's a privilege. It was a very nice interview, by the way. I enjoyed it all the way. 
Well, I have a comment and a question or, or a mixture of both. Uh, as a climatologist, I'm <laughs> against uh, geoengineering. You probably guessed that because uh, uh, I think it's not regulated enough. And, you know, atmosphere is in the motion. Even India, if India puts something in the air, it can end up in Pakistan or in China. And, uh, uh, and with the world leaders like we are having right now, Okay, we've got rid of Trump, but can you imagine Trump uh, being in charge of geoengineering processes? <laughs> it's scary, actually. Uh, so, as a writer, I understand that you have to write uh, as a science fiction. It's it's nice to to read about. If I would uh, write uh, science fiction, probably I would uh, mention geoengineering. But look, all uh, to catch this 1.5 degrees of warming, it's crucial what we're doing in the next 10 years. If we miss these 10 years ahead, then we probably are up to the warming, uh, uh, up to three or five degrees, who knows. Uh, so how to, as a writer, as an artist, how, what are your plans? What, what will you write next to get the boost of the movement right now? Because it's, well, 2050, it's, it's too late, actually. How to write about these practical things? How to write a science fiction about carbon tax, which is there, which is a, a very good mechanism? How to write uh, science fiction about externalization of, of, of the uh, external expenses? Because we know now what the nature is worth, in dollars or in bitcoins. How to write about yeah. these things, you know? <clears throat> well, um Thank you for that. And uh, I want to say that uh, the Ministry for the Future is my attempt to write about those very things. And I want to say that when you say geoengineering, you are meaning by the rest of your sentence, solar radiation management. In other words, you're defining geoengineering as only that one technique, which is the main one, is one most discussed and most studied as some kind of emergency gesture with dangers that you pointed out. But if women's education is geoengineering also, then you have to reorient your thinking about geoengineering and change the vocabulary so that you're talking about solar radiation management when you're talking about solar radiation management. And it has its dangers and is only the scientists studying it Climatologists are only studying because they think it might be an emergency, a necessity. Uh, if we get that four or five degree um, Celsius average rise, we are going to be dying by the millions. So that's what they're looking at. Now, there are other methods, and I'm thinking about direct air capture. That also could be called geoengineering. And indeed, it's rather speculative. Drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is uh, technically possible, but logistically uh, um, stupendous and expensive. And yet, um, if we could begin to draw down carbon dioxide at some uh, significant fraction of the speed with which we were burning it, that too is geoengineering. There isn't any obvious downside except for the industrial costs of making that much machinery. It would be like the auto industry or like iPhones. Uh, where instantaneously you would need literally millions of these machines drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That, that isn't in the Ministry for the Future as much as it ought to be because I've been learning about it 
since I wrote the book in 2019. So I'm going to say that for writers, um, I'm kind of done. Uh, it, Ministry for the Future is my contribution, but immediately the feedback I've been getting in the year since it's out are, are two parts. One, people like this story. They wanted a story like it, of the, of the optimistic story of us dodging the mass extinction event. Two, I'm wrong here at A, B, C, D. I didn't bring up E. I, I should consider F. I'm wrong about G and H. Well, this is true. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm just a science fiction writer throwing the dice, trying a story. Um, it's not a world, it's a novel. And one novel can only cover so much. I, I think in many ways, the Ministry for the Future tries to cover too much, but um, the novel is a capacious form and it can play games like this every once in a while. And you, you roll a lot of dice and then you trust your readers to um, pick it all up and make it coherent. Uh, and, and I have a, a readership that is uh, willing to follow me into strange territory. In fact, I wanted to thank Marta because um, when she brings in the New York novel and Aurora, what she's uh, pointing out indirectly is that I've been working on this as a continuous process for my last six or 10 books uh, for the last 30 years. And so, you know, I pass on the torch. I, 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 I'm, I'll continue to write, but indeed it needs to be a generational effort. There needs to be a whole crowd of young um, uh young writers and young people in their activism that are enacting these things. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. I, I also think that young people as a readers are really the group to be targeted. So I guess I, that's my time is up. And maybe more questions. <laughs> Hi, my name is Luka Omladic. I'm an um, environmental uh, philosopher and I'm um, also involved in with um, eco-socialist party here in Slovenia. So um, my question will be political. Uh, you, you tackle the question of uh, eco-radicalism or uh, even eco-terrorism in, in your book. And I, I was wondering, I think the question is, uh, we uh, environmental community as a whole tends to use the words like a uh, war for the climate. For example, Michael Mann's new book is titled War for the Climate. And you, in your presentation, you, you used the word uh, battle, and yet you emphasized its uh, discursive battle. And also Michael Mann, of course, when he speaks about the war, he also means the discursive wars against uh, climate denials. But on the other hand, do you think, is there a possibility or uh, can, can you envisage a, a world where this will not play out that well, where we will indeed have uh, climate wars or uh, when, when the struggle will not only be a discursive struggle, but also a, a concrete class struggle? And, um, mm -hmm. well, again, this connects with your uh, depiction of uh, um, eco-radicalism in your book. Yes, thank you for that, Luca. Um, it's an important question, I think. And I'm a, a, a middle-class white American man, really one of the most privileged people on the earth today and in history itself. And so I don't want to advocate violence. I think that would be wrong from my subject position um, because I myself won't do it. 
and wouldn't want to, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that there are going to be people that suffer uh, horrendously. The immiserated of the earth, there are two billion people on the planet right now uh, living in misery, and they have right to be extremely angry, enough to take matters into their own hands and perhaps um, do violence against the whom they consider the guilty. But since the system itself is guilty, um, this is a strategy that's never going to do much except maybe scare people in power, and maybe people in power need to be scared. So you will probably know of Andreas Malm, who, a Swedish philosopher who recently published a book, um, How to Break a Pipeline. And he brings up the interesting question of violence against machinery, uh, uh, sabotage, as opposed to uh, terrorism. Would that be appropriate? Should you be going down and breaking uh, carbon fossil fuel machinery? Well, um, we all use electricity, so this is problematical in itself. So I come back to what you identified, eco-socialism. That's how, in the broadest terms, I would define myself. And the reason is socialism, as a 19th century thing, was very often something that Marta brought up, humans and then nature. And humans manipulate nature to make a good world for humans. And nature is just the raw material to be made into a good human future to reduce misery. Well, that was an earlier view. And as, as powerful and important as socialism was, you see the results in Eastern Europe. Um, where um, socialist governments devastated their landscapes. And the same thing is still going on in China, which is socialism with Chinese characteristics of wrecking their landscape and their long-term prospects for the short-term improvement of immiserated lives. You can see the importance of trying. You can see that it was wrong. And you need, I mean, wrong in this, you need the eco. You need eco-socialism where the whole biosphere is regarded as the citizenship, where the biosphere itself is one of the socialist citizens that needs to be brought out of misery and made as healthy as the rest of it in one larger integrated system. So um, if you could win the discursive battle by explaining this, this is my hope that, that we do that first and, and try to avoid the violence against other people, which will usually rebound against the cause. Mm. In other words, it will cause more damage over the long haul than good. And yet certain people in this world need to be scared, scared for themselves or scared for their children. So I guess from my point of view, I, you know, I write a scene so scary that I can't even read it myself. Mm. Um, but other people are going to be more like, no, I'm going to blow up your house. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, you're you're more optimistic than uh, Margaret Atwood. Authors, not hard to do. <laughs> that was funny. Um, yeah. One of one of the things that, like, regarding violence, and and your last novel, like, there is this. There is all this conversation about what constitutes violence. No, you talk about sometimes how a slow violence is not considered violence until it turns into fast violence, which is the case maybe with the 
with a heat wave that kills 20 million people in one, one go, it, it reminds me of uh, Autumn McGuire talked a lot about what constitutes, you know, genocide as a case of numbers and what is a ca- catastrophe. And it's, and it's a case of volume. So in this case, it's, it's a case of speed, no? It's like the same number of vets just comprised in one little go. So we have our third guest that is going to ask a question. Hello. Welcome to you. It's a great pleasure to listen to this uh, talk. Um, apart from like really systemic um, critiques that I really love reading in your novels, I really enjoy the characters and how you present people as uh, with all their petty little desires and sometimes very altruistic and um and it shows really how diverse people are and also how it is really difficult to rein us in, to really control us. And on the other hand, um, what I see always is the global perspective that you're trying to address. And what you mentioned also at the beginning of this discussion, that um, you're interested in raising awareness about the global in a way how we are a part of this system in a very biological way, in a very interconnected way. Um, But my question would be um, also to do with space, um, because I've um, studied some degrowth perspectives recently and their proposal that it would be necessary for us to be much more frugal, to have different kind of ethics that would... um, not strive for more, but strive for less, and also trying not to be global, trying to be local. I would be really curious to see how you see this interplay between global and local in your novels and as well in your philosophy. Thank you very much for that. Um, I appreciate in particular uh, your comment on my novels as uh, being about characters because I've really pushed the novel in ways that in certain uh, examples make them into experiments in form, but I fully believe that novels are about characters and that the reader of a novel has the right to think that they're going to uh, get to uh, experience an act of telepathy and be inside other people's heads which is mostly unavailable to us, but it's a, and it's a fictional experience only, but quite vivid uh, when you're a, a reader that loves to read novels. And I need to always emphasize that that's what I want to do most is write good novels. But in this world, it means writing about the, the whole biosphere together because that's the context, that's the setting that is inescapable. And so the local is also the character. The character is dealing always with their local mm-hmm. situation. And in my in the Ministry for the Future, in Chapter 85, I think, is a, just a list of local organizations around this world that already exist that are doing uh, landscape restoration and wildlife uh, protection. And this uh, is an important chapter. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes for the audiobook to read it. And it's just a list of local organizations that are already doing this good work. And of course, it's only representative. There must be hundreds of times more. Um, and so the the work any individual citizen can do, even 
when the global is crucial, like in um, the central banks, the international organizations, the Paris Agreement, these are our representatives organizing thing at the international level. But as an individual citizen, you really can only do what's in your neighborhood, what's in your community and your, uh, your watershed, your bioregion. So um, it needs to be top down because otherwise these local efforts get eaten by capitalist realism and they they don't change the system in which they exist to the point where they can really thrive they become like rescue operations and they cope but they don't transform so um you need top down to local you need the bottom up from local to the global because that's what individuals can do and i recently i've realized that also side to side between the local and the global are is the level of the city and the region and side to side, like in the United States, there are a hundred million people living in cities that have made city to city agreements to reduce their carbon burn. Now that's like one third of all Americans are close to it. Um, and it's worked at the regional level. So it isn't really bottom up. It isn't just you and your neighbors. It isn't international top down. It's that and so uh, we think in these dichotomies, these binaries, mm. and so you think, well, there's top down, there's bottom up, but no, there's also side to side, this flux in the middle. Uh, and these efforts are also crucially important. So um, yeah, I, that's how I would address that. But, but returning to a, a thanks, because a, um, a character in a novel is a type, it stands for, um, the ordinary, uh, uh, the reader living their citizen lives as one out of 8 billion people. I mean, what can you do as one out of 8 billion people? Well, it's, it's not nothing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual real effect in the world, the one 8 billionth effect. So um, the, as a novelist, this is how I'm always coming at it uh, to try to tell that story too. Thank you. I see it as like, brilliant contribution to understanding biodiversity. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, the three of you, for your very kind and interesting questions. And um, and uh, I, I was laughing before with the conversation about your characters, because in, in the ministry, you have many, many narrators and many characters telling the story from different perspectives, including sometimes like history with a capital H and and what else like the sun <laughs> no or one of my favorite the pilots that are distributing the sulfur dioxide into the air and the collective narration of this event that changes you know everything for everybody so profoundly I found extremely moving and also you know it's a book you just cannot put down this is this is just <laughs> what it is I think it is time now for our listeners' questions that are going to be read by beautiful Nessa here. Hi, Nessa. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you, Martin. Thank you, Stan. And thank you. Big thanks to our online audience posing so many interesting questions in the chat. We have selected four, and the first one is by James Bridal, maybe as a bit of an elaboration from your chat with Luca a few minutes ago. James is saying, I was very struck by the Black Ops unit in the Ministry for the Future, and Andrea's mom has also written on similar ideas in how to blow up a pipeline. Do you see this possibility as a return of organizations like the Monkey Ranch Gang and the Earth First 
the further radicalization of groups like Greenpeace or Extinction Rebellion or something newer and possibly more evenly distributed? Um, thank you for that. I'm very interested in this um, because I, I took a close uh, and you might say personal interest in Earth First, um, an organization in the United States led by Dave Foreman, inspired by Edward Abbey's The Monkey Ranch Gang, and in my novel Antarctica, and to a very small research level degree in my own life, I uh, looked into what it would take to slow down the uh, unnecessary profit-driven destruction of the forests of the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Canada um, without hurting people. So this is what Malm is talking about too, sabotage, echotage, um, and not violence against people, but against capitalism. Because the profit margins are small when you're destroying a, a biosphere that in, in certain economic calculations is worth far more than your profit. Um, I like Extinction Rebellion and I like Greenpeace very much. Um, the National Science Foundation, when they were um, establishing the bases for the United States in Antarctica, were just trashing the environment down there. And so two things happened. The Environmental Defense Fund sued them in Washington, D.C., in federal court. And Greenpeace went down there and took all the trash from their um, uh, garbage pile and threw it on the office floor in the middle of a meeting and yelled at people. Um, and it was those two actions together that convinced the National Science Foundation that McMurdo ought to be an exercise in cleanliness. So I take this as a modeling exercise. It's about laws. What stimulates people to change the laws and to obey the, the good, good laws that already exist? Sometimes direct action, and especially if you think of it as non nonviolent against people, so that it's civil disobedience or it's the kind of things that you see Extinction Rebellion and Greenpeace already thinking about. If you put your little boat in front of a Japanese whaler, well, this is heroic because um, the whaler isn't really endangered. In fact, you're endangered radically sometimes, but the, the whales get away. Uh, again, you see these um, kind of, um, what would you call it? Charismatic megafauna of direct action resistance that's been successful and hasn't hurt any uh, humans except in their pocketbook financially where they need to be hurt and where uh, many of people who care about this stuff are hurt worse in their pocketbook than if you had slapped them in the face. So um, uh, without wanting to encourage actions I wouldn't do myself, which I feel is immoral, I would say that um, there's gonna be a lot of young people coming up who are gonna be thinking about these matters in very active terms. Thank you. Um, our second question comes from Pinchito. Uh, and they commented, geoengineering does not need to be complex. Just painting all ceilings in the world white might reduce global temperatures by around one degree Celsius. Is there any other particular bizarre scheme such as this one that you love? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, th thank you for that. Yes, that would be a great idea. And why not, right? 
um, this is the uh, aspect of geoengineering that I like. In the Ministry for the Future, I have one for you that is relatively new. The glaciers sliding off of Antarctica and Greenland into the ocean, it's not that they're melting from uh, uh, the heat of the air. They are sliding faster than they used to into the ocean where they melt. So if you suck the water out from underneath them, the meltwater that has um, slipped down there through cracks, and this is a pumping method we already have, uh, it, it, it would, again, like... Um, dust in the atmosphere, it would be easy to do relatively less than a billion dollars for sure to suck that water out from underneath these glaciers in Antarctica and in Greenland and slow them back down to the speed that they were before. Even in a warmer world, if they are uh, thumped back down onto the base rock rather than sliding down like in a water slide, sea level will be that much less prone to rising fast. So that's one that I like. But what I like in your question is that there are uh, hundreds of methodologies for, um, that because we're, there are so many people on Earth, hundreds of small actions can add up to good geoengineering or what you can say climate mitigation. They can be true mitigation without, by the way, um, degrowth. And... Uh, Degrowth is a weird word because it, it implies uh, suffering or renunciation, things that humans aren't particularly good at. It's asking the young to be saints because we've been sinners. I think it, it although it's right that there should be fewer people and less impact on the biosphere, that it needs to be reconceptualized for the discursive battle as something more like sophistication or stylishness. Well, talking about sinners and saints. Our third question comes from Naveen and she's asking in Ministry for the Future, the character Badim talks about the need for a new global religion for, for this time of global ecological crisis. Can you talk more about what this religion might be like and how it would bring people together given existing religions continue to separate communities all over the world? Uh, yes, uh, that's a good question. Thank you, Naveen. And I, I didn't do a particularly good job in the Ministry for the Future in taking this new or old religion very seriously. I had so many balls in the air like a juggler. I didn't want to deal with that one, which is like a, you know, a chainsaw thrown into a juggler's mix. Uh, so I made a bit of a joke out of it, although I gestured that way through Badim. And the thing is, the new religion would be the oldest religion that the earth is our mother. This is genderizing, but you see what I mean. Um, it gives birth to us and then sustains us. And, and indeed, when human beings left Africa 120,000 years ago or so to occupy the rest of the world as a quickly dominant force, they already had a religion that spread everywhere on earth. And sometimes it's called shamanism. Sometimes it's called Gaia. I mean, that's obviously from a European tradition, the word Gaia. But an earth religion is at the basis of all the religions. So the ones that have come up since in what you would call the post-agricultural period, they often were class-based. They were part of a power relation. I don't like them. Um, they have aspects of good in them, uh, for sure. But they need to um, think about the larger picture of the... Um, 
the sun as a god, the earth as a god or a goddess. Um, this and and what I'm saying is that the whole business is a sacred business. That it has to do with a, a spiritual attitude. That humanity has an urge to want things to mean something, and that's what religion is all about. And we choose it. We make it up. I mean, my religion is literature for that very reason. But there is a bigger religion that hits you that literature just tries to express when you go outdoors. So um, it's very important. There's, I would say this, and, and this is a peculiar way to come at it. There's a huge part of our brain in the temporal lobe that anytime you have religious thoughts, it lights up like a, like a light bulb. And so we evolved with religious feelings that need to be, um, at this point, in this so-called secular world or enlightenment world, rational, reasonable, scientific world, it's nevertheless uh, a spiritual and even mystical business that um, we have an urge towards meaning. And that needs to come into play here. So uh, one planet or um, it's not a village. So global village isn't the right phrase, but one that all... All, all people are brothers and sisters together, that we're all family, including our bacteria, all part of one larger family. This is a religious statement too. So it is important. And um, I invite others to pursue it in a way that would be more comprehensive. And in fact, I would say that my novel Green Earth and my novel Shaman are uh, stronger on this uh, particular aspect of the project than Ministry for the Future. And I would go back to what Marta was pointing out, that the my uh, my novels of the last 10 or so have been taking on different parts of this uh, larger situation that we're in. Well, for our fourth and last question, uh, Sinan is wondering, why is it important to write utopian fiction? <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, I want to thank you for that because I am a utopian science fiction writer and there aren't that many of them. Um, the, the, the canon of that particular kind of literature is rather small. And my greatest utopian contemporaries, Ursula K. Le Guin and Ian Banks, have both um, passed away. But also, everybody does it. So, in other words, we all tell utopian science fiction stories to ourselves about our own lives, about our community's lives. So, um, I think it's important. And what I'm seeing now is that with the Ministry for the Future, there's, a, there's an empty ecological niche in our culture, which is precisely utopia. And uh, people want stories like this. So, my novel, well, it's a mess. People like it anyway because um, there's nothing, uh, they don't have anything better yet to uh, fill that niche in their desires. So, um, yeah, utopia will always keep happening. It's a way of organizing your thoughts as to how we might get to a better place. It's not a perfect end state, it is a name for one kind of history. And so it's important to stick with it so that we can organize our efforts towards making that um, better history come true. Um, and I guess I would uh, um, leave it at that, except for uh, just as a personal note, you know, writing utopian science fiction, it's felt quite crazy. And I just read a good book on Soviet socialist realism 
by a Katarina Clark, in which she says that to write utopian fiction, which was really, or to write socialist realism, was to be schizophrenic. It's a mode of schizophrenia that you want to, in the novel, talk about what is, but you also want to talk about what ought to be. And so I began to laugh because I realized that I spent my entire uh, artistic career as a, as an, in effect, a, a schizophrenic uh, in terms of modes. But um, this is just representative of all of us, really. Um, we all recognize what is. We all have a feeling of what ought to be. They are not well correlated right now. And so we have to uh, keep uh, working on utopia. Thank you. Thank you both. That's all of, all of our questions. Uh, I want to thank you both for, for the very interesting conversation. And yeah, bye. <laughs> well, thank you, Netta. And uh, I also think this is an exceptionally good note to call it a night. And I am so pleased to have had the opportunity to have this conversation with, with you, Stan. I am a, like a massive admirer of, of your work and your research and your optimism. I want your vision to be my vision, and I hope it is definitely contagious for everybody listening. Also, I would like to say that despite the fact that you've been saying that now other people will have to be doing this job, you're not stopping <laughs> your, your writing. You're writing a memoir, right, about your walking around Sierra Nevada. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, it's it's more about the Sierra Nevada of California than it is about me, but my own experiences up there are a big part of my way into that story. But it's about mountains, and it's nonfiction. So, um, yeah, I'm having a horrible time, but um, interesting. And, yeah, I'll keep writing, but uh, I really am, with this book, Ministry for the Future, I'm kind of passing the torch on that particular kind of project uh, to uh, younger people who will have new ideas. And so it's kind of a, uh, it's the end of a long project for me and I will keep writing, but I have to figure out new projects, which is fine. It's, it's time. Well, then we're closing this event, reminding everybody to read the ministry for the future. I mean, read all of Kim and Stanley Robinson, but read this one because it is the most important book you'll ever read this year. And I want to also remind you or maybe tell you for the first time that the second date of this extended festival of Close Encounters will be on the 15th of March with one Mr. Benjamin Brunton. So I hope to see you all there. And I say goodbye to everybody and also to you, Stan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Marta. And I urge you to listen to Benjamin Brunton, a friend of mine from UC San Diego, our, our shared university space. And he is full of great ideas and is an inspiration to me. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, also from my side. So, as you have just heard, next week we are back with a conversation between Marta Perano and Benjamin Breton. 
and with the participation once again of our special guests, of course. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of Con's platform for contemporary investigative art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are furthermore welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenia. <laughs>